You're listening to the Product Podcast from Product School, featuring the best product leaders from Silicon Valley and beyond. If you're an aspiring product manager looking for your first PM role or an experienced PM looking to level up your skills and advance your career, visit productschool.com to learn about our certificate courses and how we'll get you there. This episode is brought to you by Amplitude, the pioneer in digital optimization software that helps product leaders answer the question, how do our digital products drive our business? 1,400 plus customers, including Atlassian, Instacart, and Under Armour, rely on Amplitude's product analytics. Get started at Amplitude.com. Today, we're joined by Oliver Cameron, VP of Product at Cruise, to share his journey in the world of technology and product management. Oliver has always been curious about building things. The thrill of creating something extraordinary out of nothing is what first got him interested in product. Keep listening to hear more about his incredible journey and find out how much of a difference we can make in this world with our products. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I am here with Oliver, who is the VP of Product at Cruise. Oliver, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, everyone. This should be uh, a lot of fun. Excited to be here. Yeah, so uh, let's get started. I'd love to know a bit more about your background and how you got started in the tech industry. We were chatting a bit before you we went online about how you made the move from the north of England to San Francisco uh, just to be in the amazing Silicon Valley tech industry. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the industry? Of course. Uh, so when I was younger, uh, I, I was fascinated by the ability to... Uh, to build things. And the best way for me to build things seemed to be software uh, because you could you know, literally morph something out of nothing and then distribute it to hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of people. And uh, when I was young, that was what obsessed me. And I uh, eventually, well, I, I became an Apple fanboy. Uh, I loved the Apple story. I loved Apple products and just what the company stat, you know, stood for and was lucky enough to receive my first um, Apple uh, desktop uh, computer and got to building. And I started by building Mac OS X desktop software. And uh, as I grew up, uh, eventually, of course, the iPhone came out and the iPhone ran the same software as OS X. So I thought, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. And um, given my exposure to building software for OS X, uh, I uh, translated it uh, or tried to translate it almost immediately to iOS, but there wasn't an iOS app store at the time. So I got involved in the uh, jailbreaking community uh, quite early on for the iPhone and, and started to build these very primitive iOS apps that couldn't honestly do very much. But the idea that you had this device in your pocket that you could build software for, it just was obvious at the time just how big that impact was. And then, of course, the app store itself came and I just started to build apps officially and ended up um, selling those apps. And, and what was probably the, the most, uh, might still be the highlight of my career is one of the apps that I built was featured on an Apple TV commercial. Oh, and uh, <laughs> just this feeling of like being a fanboy of this company and, and then seemingly recognizing it was, was a, just an incredible moment. And you know, I, I was still just by myself building software in my bedroom in the UK. And I then thought, well, okay, some of these apps seem to be doing well. I should make this a, a real thing. I should, this should be my job, right? 
And uh, I dropped out of university. I, I uh, was only there for five, six months and, and decided to pursue this full time. I applied to Y Combinator, the uh, startup incubator out here in Silicon Valley. This was back in 2011 and was very fortunate to get in. So moved out to uh, the Bay Area and uh, was, was uh, again, fortunate to, to get into YC. And from that moment, um, I just started building companies. Uh, instead of building just apps, tried to build companies on the back of those apps. Um, and long story short, have uh, been very lucky to work at some really tremendous companies here in the Bay Area. Uh, founded a company called Voyage, which built self-driving cars. That company was acquired by Cruise, which is today where I am a VP of product. Amazing. And um, let's talk a little bit about the the problem that you guys are trying to solve at Cruise, because, you know, as product people, you have to love the problem and not the solution you're trying to build. So what's the problem that you guys are working on at Cruise? Absolutely. So that's a great articulation of it. Uh, so the problem at Cruise is that it's... Uh, too dangerous to get into a car and travel from point A to point B today. Uh, not only is it too dangerous, it's also uneven in access. And not everyone has access to great transportation from point A to point B. And those two problems, plus the fact that uh, the planet is in a horrible state when it comes to um, being sustainable, uh, those three problems are the, the ones that Cruise intends to solve, making roads uh, safer, making uh, roads more accessible and making uh, for a, a cleaner way uh, to move people. Those are all pretty big missions. I imagine it's quite easy to use that power of storytelling to motivate people when you're when you're trying to solve such big, such important problems. Um, so what's, what's the product culture like at Cruise? So product culture at any self-driving company, and I'll get to Cruise in a sec, but product in a self-driving company is quite different than traditional consumer products um, because the key for building a product here is transforming a technology into something that people love, right? So usually people build, you know, a app or a website and they already know what customers want and they're talking to them and they're able to test it with customers every day. And then eventually, hopefully they reach some sense of product market fit. In self-driving cars, you have this, this, um, this first step, which is to build a technology that drives people safely. And it can be awkward for product in that time period because you, know, you don't yet have a product you can put customers in. You don't have a product that works economically. Uh, and you just have to be patient. But Cruise now is and is one of the very few companies that's in this stage where that isn't where we spend most of our time. We're not spending most of our time making sure the car can drive safely. Today, we have fully driverless cars on the streets of San Francisco. That means no human in them. These cars are driving themselves, navigating through some of the more most complex uh, scenarios on the planet. And the responsibility of product now is incredibly exciting and, and awesome, right? Because we get to take this technology that's proven that's working, and then we have to find a way to convince uh, customers in San Francisco and eventually other cities to adopt this over some other quite formidable transportation methods, right? Uber, Lyft, personal car ownership, 
we are trying to um, deliver something that's that's substantially better uh, than what what they have. Where I think um, self-driving has struggled is, and where Cruise I think is different, is to decide between one of two paths. One is that you can choose to build a self-driving Uber, right? Or you can build a differentiated transportation service. One means you try and clone Uber, but there isn't a human in the car. And the other is that you take the best of self-driving and find ways to deliver a product that's significantly differentiated from uh, the pack. And we've chosen the latter path, um, which presents a lot more exciting work for product managers. Sounds awesome. Um, so as a VP of product, can you take us through maybe maybe not a typical day to day, because I'm sure there's absolutely no such thing, but maybe like a typical week to week? Absolutely. So the way I see my responsibilities is that, again, we have to transform a technology into a product. And it's the product team's responsibility to drive that change. And some of that change is cultural. We have to understand that what we're building will have customers uh, in the AV. Uh, we have to understand what features we want to build and, and really drive that uh, cultural change within the company to, to, to prioritize uh, those things. And luckily that hasn't been very hard at all because everyone at Cruise wants that to happen. Um, secondly, it's about choosing, placing the right bets, right? So we have, again, a, a technology that can drive itself and then what we have to do is place a handful of bets on things that lay on top of that foundation that we think customers will want. And it's uh, really, again, the product team's responsibility is to place those bets and then to execute on those bets uh, to, to, to drive those features to completion and then ensure that they achieve the intended, uh, intended impact. The way that mostly takes form um, is that we are a... I think a mistake a lot of companies make for product management is they assume it's a engineering, uh, sorry, execution-focused discipline. Uh, we see it as a creative discipline. The idea is that we've got lots of folks uh, who are able to take um, what's written down or what's mocked up and, and make it real. We have relatively few people who can decide what, um, how to actually bring that idea to life. And it's a product manager's responsibility to, to take these, you know, multitude of ideas that are floating around in their heads and other people's heads and, uh, and bring some sense to it and then drive that excitement and drive that, uh, that idea to clarity and then work with those folks that, uh, that build it to, to make it real. Some, uh, there's, a, there's a thread that I'd like to pull on in there where you mentioned uh, a mistake that companies commonly make about product management and how they view it. Um, as someone who's worked at a few different companies, are there any other really common mistakes that companies make in how they use and view product management as a function? Uh, yes, many. And I don't say this because Cruise is perfect and that we have product set up perfectly. I'm sure we don't. Uh, but I see a few, um, a few mistakes that other places. The, the one that stands out to me most is not understanding the difference between program managers and product managers. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes using them interchangeably and not really understanding the, the role um, of each particular discipline. Because it can be quite tempting to just use one person for two jobs. 
yeah. uh, which happens a lot of the time and maybe out of necessity in certain cases. Um, let's think. So another mistake. Um, another mistake would be isolating a product manager to just the ideation phase, right? So if the, the way I see great product managers differentiating from good or, or bad product managers is that they feel a real sense of ownership over what they're building and they see it through everything. They, they feel like they're leading not by org chart, but by just a sense of ownership over this program or sorry, this, this product that they want to build. And um, I've seen some companies which limit the scope of product management to just a sliver of the problem, mm -hmm. define the problem, define the product, and then someone else will take it from here. And I think a lot of that is how you set up your culture to make product successful. Um, but anyway, those two stand out to me more, more than uh, any others. And speaking of great product management, what do you think a great product manager looks like aside from what you've just mentioned? So definitely that, that ownership aspect is just core to great product management. I, um, Amazon has this great leadership principle, which is that um, their folks are the best folks are right more than wrong, which sounds obvious, right? Why, why wouldn't uh, you want to be right more than wrong? But it turns out there's ways to be right more than wrong. And it, it tends to, to revolve around being able to change your mind, mm -hmm. right? So the people that tend to be wrong are those that are stubborn and stick with their idea even throughout you know, copious evidence that says the idea is wrong. Um, those that tend to be right are willing to change their mind, even when it looks uncomfortable to change their mind, right? Because, I mean, as we all know, um, in the day-to-day, -day, we all want to feel successful. And in some cases, I think we erroneously attribute our idea with our ego and tie them together. So then when people critique the idea, your ego gets bruised. Separating those two things so that your ego and your idea are totally separate means that this idea can change, right? Like it's, it's purely, you know, the, the person has an idea of what they want to achieve and the idea is a means to an end. And this idea can change over and over again. And um, that's, that's a trait I found um, in the great product managers that they're willing to be wrong and they're willing to change their mind even when it might look bad for them. Um, but the truth is it doesn't look bad for you because if you're right at the end of the day, who cares if you change your mind in the process, you, you simply, you know, place that back correctly. Um, so yeah, that, those are the things that, uh, that stand out. Plus just a sense of, again, I see this as a creative task uh, versus an execution oriented task. You still have to be able to execute though. You still have to lead people and, and understand how to motivate uh, people to, to, to bring your uh, vision to life. And that can be very tough. Um, simply being creative and simply being execution oriented is, is insufficient. You really need to be, to be both. Uh, just as a mirage of different ideas here, another one that stands out to me is that uh, people that are great at this tend to attract people to want to work with them, mm -hmm. right? So that they have a charisma about them. They have something about them that, that makes people want to, to join forces with that person and, and, and build the things that they are thinking about. And that's easier said than done. But the, again, the great folks, they spend time on that. They, they think about, 
okay, I'm going into this meeting. I know that this person thinks this way and this other person thinks this way. What's the best way to deliver this message to achieve the intended outcome? And they, they think about all these little details to, to make sure that what they're, again, what they're envisioning in their head can be brought to life. And uh, yeah, they think deeply about that. This episode is brought to you by Amplitude, the pioneer in digital optimization software that helps product leaders innovate faster and smarter by answering the strategic question, how do our digital products drive our business? 1,400 plus customers like Atlassian, Instacart, and Under Armour rely on Amplitude's best-in-class product analytics solution to unlock insights, build winning products faster, and turn products into revenue. Get started at Amplitude.com. Um, and as you've moved uh, up the well up the org chart in your career into more of a position of formal authority, are there any leadership skills that you had to pick up along the way, or anything, anything that kind of changed the mindset you had about what it means to be a leader as you actually became more and more of one? Yes, numerous, uh, and this is because of um, a maraud of mistakes <laughs> that uh, that I made. So, you know, starting my first company. Uh, it was my first job in many ways and raised money, grew that team and didn't really have a clue what I was doing um, and learned and, you know, adapted and, and continued to do that. The um, probably the biggest change for me, and this goes to also what, again, I, I think great product managers have is just that sense of awareness or maybe more clearly put knowing how to read a room Right, so when you walk into a room, that room may need different things than you're feeling, right? So if you're walking into that room frustrated because maybe a deadline was missed and then you see the people in that room and maybe you're frustrated or you're not the happiest, um, but you, what you read from that room is that they need um, a morale boost, right? Because maybe, again, things are behind and uh, things are going against you. You need to put your own emotion aside and say, I, I know what this room needs to achieve this result. I need, I need to give them a morale boost. I need to be happy. I need to portray confidence. I need to, whatever it might be. And being able to put your own emotion aside and say, this is what the room needs in this moment. Um, that awareness, it's something I'm, I'm not particularly uh, great at today, but it's knowing when to deliver the right messages. Um, that is just, again, what, not to overuse this, but it, what separates the, the great managers from the good managers um, is, is that awareness. Um, some other things I, I think about a lot revolve around um, knowing how often to be involved in the weeds of things. So there's certain projects where you, you know, maybe feel that you have to set an example uh, and dive into the, the trenches with everyone and, and be there for every meeting, every decision and, and, and do so um, in a very detailed manner. And then there's others that you should just back away from, right? And say, you built a great team, you trust them you know, with what they were hired to do, just back up, you're not needed uh, in this particular scenario. And again, knowing which of those to, to do or not do is, is quite tough. And, uh, but again, is, is a sign of, of, um, of someone that a, a lot of leading is, is psychology, right? It's, it's understanding what people need at that moment. And maybe in that particular case, this, piece, this person needs freedom or they need space. They need space to fail or space to succeed. 
In other cases, maybe you need to lead by example and, and just set a tone and knowing which is, is the, the hard problem, really. Mm -hmm. And something I'd really like to uh, pick your brain on, um, in the community recently, we've been talking a lot about culture and how uh, leaders, especially product leaders, need to intentionally build culture. And there's kind of this misconception that you just put a bunch of people in a room, if they get on, boom, culture, that's it. But it's actually something that you need to cultivate. So do you have any advice for how to intentionally cultivate culture? So that could not agree more aggressively about that. The um, I, I you you captured it in the word intentional, and I think a lot of folks tend to shy away from being direct about these things, right? So they try and find almost like shadowy ways to affect the culture, like and you can just, yeah, like and and that's one way to do it. But you can also just be direct, right? So um, and. and in many cases, just break it down to basics, right? It's it's saying, well, yes, in some ways, the amalgamation, the sum of the people you bring together is going to form the foundation of your culture. So you, of course, should think about who you hire and how you um, set up your team uh, for that. But then there's a number of layers you can put on top of that foundation to make um, that culture be, again, either average or excellent. And... Um, in, in some cases, it's as simple as just setting values. And then when you see those values being lived, applauding them and making a big show and dance about that happening. Um, in some cases, it's, okay, not, not to rehash the point, it, it's again how a certain number of people show up in a morning, right? So if uh, the co-founders or senior leadership or what have you every single day uh, don't celebrate the wins and just obsess over the failures. That sets a cultural tone. And being aware of that means you can change your culture, right? You, you can be aware of, well, I need to celebrate a win because that's what my company needs right now. And that's how we keep a sense of optimism, you know, in the, in the company. Um, or maybe you see standards dropping below where you need to. And maybe part of your culture that you want to build is a, is a high standards culture point that out. The way you erode that culture is by not pointing it out, right? If you let standards drop, then of course you're not going to be able to say you have a high standards culture. So uh, honestly, it, it's just about, um, it's just not that difficult it, as weird as it sounds. It's just about picking up on the cues and then communicating those things, um, which is where I think a lot of people get tripped up. It's it's that they, they don't communicate it or they feel afraid to communicate it when in fact, most people just want to hear what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And the, the last thing I mentioned is um, culture isn't just, you know, it, like I said, built by uh, in, in shadowy ways or built by one person. It really is everyone, uh, everyone's responsibility to, to build culture. And that is something you can challenge your teams with. You can say, this is something we're all doing together. What do you think? How should we do this? And make by making people accountable to it, they behave differently than if they're merely a consumer of it. Definitely fantastic advice there. Um, and as product people, we're always talking about our uh, communal love of learning, shall we say, how we're always looking to learn new things. Um, what are some of the things that you're interested in learning about? Or is there anything that you're actively trying to learn more about at the moment? Absolutely. So I'm fanatical about this. So I'll keep this short, but I was a terrible learner in school. I, for some reason, couldn't sit in a classroom and just 
my grades reflected it, just not good. Um, but I, I found you know, this ability to learn behind a laptop. And one of the companies I was very lucky to join was a company called uh, Udesty. And Udesty, um, if no one's heard of it, provides um, education online in topics like machine learning, robotics, um, self-driving cars, things like that. And this was my first taste back in 2010, something like that, 2011 maybe, uh, of machine learning. Being able to find just these wondrous resources online and, and learn um, through a laptop whenever I wanted and whenever I felt like it was just the, the most amazing thing in the world. And what was really exciting to see at Udacity um, was, like you said, that communal sense of, uh, of, of learning and folks helping each other along the way, picking them up when people fell down and, and, and helping them across the line. So I, I very much believe in that. And um, I think for uh, product management in particular, um, there really isn't the, the sort of computer science equivalent, the computer science degree equivalent for product management. So I came at this problem from an engineering perspective, someone who wanted to build products and engineering was my means to do so. And on the team, we have a cruise, there's a variety of different approaches, which again, tells me that folks uh, can come from many different disciplines and, and have an impact in this field. And it frankly doesn't care what degree people have. It just matters as, as long as they, they build great products. I'm not sure I'm answering the question directly there, but I'm, I'm fanatical about enabling more folks to learn online and enabling folks to learn different disciplines because uh, it, it's just a better way if we're honest with ourselves. Hi, this is Roland Smart, the CMO here at Product School. And I'm jumping into your podcast feed again because we're launching our first ever listener survey. Participating will help us understand, well, you, and what topics you're most interested in and how we can better serve our audience as a whole. Go to productschool.com forward slash podcast to take the survey. It takes just three minutes to complete and it would mean the world to us. If you can, hit pause now, click the link in the show notes and you'll be back to the episode in a flash. Thank you. And as someone who builds product teams, um, the landscape of the technology industry is always shifting. I mean, especially in the last couple of years with all of the changes that we've seen. Um, so that means that people need, if, well, if there's any aspiring product managers who are watching, who are wanting to get into product for the first time, the skills that they may need to pick up for future jobs might be a little bit different to what they would have needed 10 years ago. Um, what would you say are the main skills that people should start pursuing now to land those product jobs in the next few years? Something that might set them apart from other applicants? Um, a, curiosity, a curiosity. So I'm going to steal this from uh, someone that came to visit Cruise recently who had this advice, a guy called Gary Tan. Um, so when I look back at um, myself, jumping into jailbreaking and iPhone development, that there wasn't many people doing that at the time. And his advice uh, is basically for any, and this goes for anyone, but I think it does apply specifically to product managers too, is to find niches, right? And to, to find those early, to find something where tens, maybe hundreds of people are working on something and get, hopefully you find it fascinating, but, but go really deep in those areas. As a, as a curiosity and to find those niches around 
the internet or around different product areas and just be ready. It might be that that area is too small for it to be a job or it to be a career, um, but get passionate about something that is a niche that is small. And then maybe one day it blows up, right? Maybe it does become the iPhone app store. Maybe it becomes machine learning as we know it today, as it was back in uh, 2011, 2012. Uh, maybe it's crypto that obviously perhaps is a, is a bit too mainstream to, uh, well, arguably mainstream to jump into today. But if you were to jump into it in 2014, 2015, you know, you, everyone would have looked very smart uh, by having done so. So for any product manager, I think it's, um, it's okay to have your day job today, of course, that is about something that is immediately changing the world and, and is already, has already arrived. But I think it's prudent for any product manager to have a hobby that um, is about a niche and finding that corner of the internet where something strange or weird or, or interesting is happening and to embrace it and, and see what comes of it. Even if it's nothing, you'll make some friends along the way and they might tell you about the next niche or the next big thing, or maybe you discover Bitcoin at you know a few cents per Bitcoin. Who knows? Absolutely love that advice. I'm crazy about weird niches. I'm absolutely obsessed with them. So that is fantastic advice to my ears. Um, I see that we're coming down to our last couple of minutes, but I think we've got time for some um, some che cheeky last questions. Sure. Uh, so I'd love to know if you could go back in time to that guy sitting at the computer, his first Mac, uh, learning how to learning how to code for the first time. What career advice would you go back and give yourself? Um, be, uh, sounds strange and a bit too personal, but be, be less hard on yourself, right? So I, I think a lot of folks beat themselves up for every little thing. Um, if a meeting didn't go right, they beat themselves up. If, if something, um, if the result that happened wasn't what you proposed or your, what we were talking about earlier, idea, you know, not going in the right direction, whatever it might be. Uh, I, I tended to see my career as a series of very short battles. And uh, as long as I won that battle, then I go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And the reason I, I say don't be as hard is, is because I think it's important to have fun, right? I, I, it's important to enjoy yourself while doing this, right? Like we're in an amazing industry. We're building crazy cool things. And to, to not have fun while doing it is just... I don't know that that's something I, I wish I could go back to, to my younger self and say this, this should be fun. You should enjoy what you're doing and, and feel satisfied about it. Um, so that, that would be the main advice. Wonderful advice there as well. Uh, and finally, now this is a bit of a doozy of a question, uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I can. Um, if you could sum up the future of the tech industry in one word, what would that word be for you? <laughs> you know, it's like, a, I forget what that test is called, whether you have to say the first thing that comes to mind. I was going to oh, yeah. say dystopian, uh, <laughs> but that, that's not good. Um, I would say that, this sounds really cliche, uh, but hopeful, right? So when I think of technology and I think of all the smart people that are working on it, every single person I've met is in this for good that they're in it to do something that, that moves people forward, that, that significantly uh, improves people's lives or saves lives or whatever it might be. And, you know, tech has taken a beating in the last, well, three to four years, arguably even longer. And I think that's, you know, going to have ramifications down the line. But what I see today are a whole bunch of people still getting into this industry 
and a whole bunch of very smart people that, that want to, again, change things for the better. When I see that mass of people getting into it, I, I, I am hopeful that the world will become uh, a better place as a result of it. Um, that said, I, go back to the, the first word I had in my mind, which was dystopian. I think we all have to be cautious. Um, Facebook, as an example, has, uh, has showed us that technology is very powerful, right? Like the, the things we build can, can grow and grow massively to the point where it literally affects society, you know, at large. And uh, we, we have a responsibility as, a, as an industry to be very cautious about that. We still have to push the limits and push things forward, but um, we, we should also be cautious of that as well. I could not agree more with both of those points. Everyone that we've had the pleasure of speaking to either on the podcast or at our conferences or uh, the students who take our certifications, they're all such overwhelmingly brilliant people that you think if these are the people who make up the tech industry, how can it be that bad? But also I watched The Matrix last night. So <laughs> kind of got those two versions of the tech industry in my head at once. Um, I'm so sad that that is all the time that we've had because I feel like we could talk for hours. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. No, thank you for having me. It's been awesome. And thank you everyone for watching. We will see you in the next Fireside Chat. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Product Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Taking the time to write just a few sentences about what you love most about the show will help us improve it and reach even more product people around the world. And when you're done, why not reward yourself with some free product management content and resources over at productschool.com. Until next time, stay product-led.